Hello, and welcome back to the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. I'm Anna Fittinghoff. And I'm Matt Leighton. In this episode, Matt and I are delighted to interview Dr. Lauren Richardson, lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Nas uh, Australian National University. Prior to taking up her role at ANU, Dr. Richardson was actually a lecturer at Voices in Japanese Studies home institution, the University of Edinburgh, where she taught Northeast Asian relations. Though we focus on Dr. Richardson's experiences within the field of Japanese studies in this episode, her expertise is not confined to Japan, having also studied South Korea and the Korean language during her academic training. Her research focuses on non-state actors and their role in shaping diplomatic relations in Northeast Asia. Dr. Richardson obtained her PhD from ANU and received master's degrees from both Monash University in Australia and Keio University in Japan. As in our previous interview with Dr. Young, we take some time at the end of the episode to address the ongoing COVID pandemic and its impact on academia, though this episode was recorded prior to the recent encouraging news regarding vaccine developments. We hope that you enjoy this insight into Dr. Richardson's career so far and find it inspiring as you consider your own journey in the field of Japanese studies. We would like to thank the British Association for Japanese Studies for their ongoing support and making this podcast possible. So we are here today um, virtually again um, with Dr. Lauren Richardson. Um, she is a lecturer in international relations at uh, Australian National University in Canberra and also um, was uh, at Edinburgh and that's where uh, we got to know each other a little bit more in class. It's great to have you on the podcast this week. Yeah, great to be speaking with you both again and Really happy to, yeah, be able to share my thoughts on Japan studies. Excellent. Glad to have you here. Um, so to get started then, as usual, we just want to know a little bit about how you got into the field of Japanese studies. So was Japan uh, or East Asia something that you had much of an interest in when you were young, when you were growing up? So before you actually got into your undergraduate degree, did you always think it was an area that you might go and study? Uh, yeah, how did you find yourself in this field? Right, well, I had no interest in or knowledge of Japan really when I was in primary school. I was studying Italian. I went to a, a Catholic primary school, um, but then things changed just before I entered high school. Um, my mother just very suddenly got involved uh, with Japanese Buddhism in Melbourne, in Australia. And as a result of that, there were often Japanese people coming to my house and they would often travel to Japan and, you know, travel in between Japan and Melbourne and bring things from Japan to the house, you know, cakes and things they bought. So I became really intrigued by Japan. I just thought it was very exotic. And, and there were not only Japanese members practicing this Buddhism, but also um, Chinese and uh, Malaysian members. And so I kind of became interested just in that region. And then at the same time, I was uh, just starting high school. And at my high school in Melbourne, we all had to learn German for the first six months and then Japanese for the next six months. And then oh. the the second year of high school, we had to choose one of those languages. 
and about 95% of the students chose German because they thought it was easier. Um, but I chose Japanese because I, I felt like I had a connection to the country through Buddhism. Um, so yeah, it really just began from there and I, I really loved learning Japanese. And then when when uh, it came to like uh, yeah finishing high school and like thinking about what you want to um, do um, after after school, how how did you um, become became aware of this being like something that you can actually like take to a, an academic um, environment or and maybe uh, even then further as a, as a career. Yeah, good question. I was actually, I, I had a few passions in high school. One of them was flute and I decided I want to be a musician and I was very single-minded about that and I ended up studying music um, at University of Melbourne in the conservatorium um, and then I shifted over to Monash University um, to study music, um, to continue with flute. I was doing Bachelor of Music um, but unfortunately, I got an injury, kind of repetitive strain injury, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I tried everything. I spent a year and then I was told by my doctor, you shouldn't play anymore. So I was really frustrated. I didn't know what to do. So I thought I'll just take a break from flute and hopefully get better. And I didn't know, I didn't want to leave university. So I thought, what should I do in the meantime? And then I thought back to high school And I asked myself the question, what did I like? What, what did I like other than music? And the only thing that came to mind was Japanese. So I thought, I'll just take a few Japanese courses. And again, was really enjoying that. But I found that um, because of my injury, I couldn't practice kanji. I couldn't really grip a pen. It was really, really bad. So I was so frustrated. I just, on, on a whim, I just sold my flute and used the money um, to go to Japan decided oh. to take time off. Wow. I deferred from university and I moved uh, to Tokyo and I got a job. I was offered a job in Tokyo teaching English and also one in Kagoshima. And so I decided to go for the rural experience and I spent <laughs> four months teaching English in Kagoshima, giving my arms a break. And it was a really rural part of um, Kagoshima called Kanoya not in the city, you know, extremely rural. And I just absolutely fell in love with Japan from that experience. And I decided at that point, I'm going to get serious about this. I'm not going to muck around with flute anymore, hoping that this injury is going to um, improve. Um, and I just made the decision at that point that I'm going to build a career around Japan. I didn't, it didn't enter my head to become an academic. I was actually quite anti-intellectual. I didn't like writing essays or just writing in general. So I thought I'd work in a trade company or something. So I came back and then I shifted to Bachelor of Asian Studies and also took up Korean because I thought a lot of people learn Japanese in Australia. It won't be enough, you know, um, to get a job with one language. So do two. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a, a far-sighted decision then to um, pick up the second language alongside Japanese um, as well. So how did yeah, you find how did how did you find that trying to juggle <laughs> learning Japanese and Korean at the same time as part of the same degree? I found it really challenging, to be honest. I think people when when you tell them you studied Japanese and Korean or you know multiple languages, they assume that you're really good at languages, but that wasn't the case at all. I just was really worried about my future 
you know, by this stage, my friends were all graduating and I was just starting in a new field and I devoted 10 years of my life to music and training, you know, to, to be in that field and it had failed. So I was just really quite panicked about my future. Um, so I struggled. And the first time I had my Korean oral exam, I kept answering in Japanese. So I got oh. confused. <laughs> it was a real struggle. But I, I just persevered. It's, I'm just going to keep going with that. Yeah. <laughs> Something you'd, you'd recommend? Um, um, I actually would now. It's funny because now that I am an academic and I do Japan career relations, everyone, you know, they'll, they'll look at my trajectory or my past and they'll say, wow, you were so strategic. But I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't know that's what I was. I kind of created my career, you know, based on those decisions I made rather than other way around, if that makes sense. Hmm. But I actually would now, I think the best decision I ever made was to branch into Korean studies because not that many people were doing it at the time and that field kind of exploded by the time I graduated. Um, so I think it was the best decision I ever made, yeah, really. And because academia has become really competitive, I think broadening is a better strategy than narrowing. Mm -hmm. so, but I think that's yeah. a, a, a really good point you make there about looking back on it, it might look strategic, but I think it's kind of important to point out that, you know, it's very easy to go and look at an academic's career and say, oh, look, well, they've just, they've thought this through, they've gone from this, so they could do this, so they could do this, so they could do this. And it can look like a very well mapped out and um, very logical path in hindsight. But I think it's good to kind of recognize that that's really not how it happens a lot of the time. You know, you, you oh, kind of make a decision yeah. saying, oh, that'll be interesting. And in the end, it might pan out, but there's, I mean, obviously a lot of it is hard work and making sure you create the opportunity for yourself. But um, like you say, you know, Korean studies has really kind of expanded and, and, and exploded over the last few years, which is something you couldn't have known for sure when you were starting out on this. Oh, no way. I actually kind of did Korean because I just thought, of, again, it was really exotic. <laughs> I didn't know one word in Korean. This was before, you know, this was in about, 2000 2001 this is a long time ago you know and it wasn't it was starting to get popular um but it, it really wasn't a big thing and most of the people doing it were also studying Japanese so it wasn't like I was doing anything unique really within my university which had a strong Asian studies program but yeah I mean I I would say to students you know try to build your career in that way you know try to when you're choosing the next step whether it be for your master's or phd try to capitalize on the things you've already done you know i often have students coming to wanting to write a dissertation on the pacific islands you know within ir and then i find out you know they've studied chinese as an undergrad so i'm like well why not combine that look at you know china's foreign policy in the pacific islands and that's how you build up a real you know expert profile when you use the things you've done before, rather than just go off on completely different tangents and, and things. I think that ends up being strategic, even though you don't know where you're heading, ultimately it will look like you were strategic in the end. <laughs> and you've mentioned there's kind of like the, the strong language aspect of, of, of getting into uh, Japanese studies and then also learning Korean and, and uh, kind of a little bit of, uh, yeah, 
is like academic writing and, and, and this kind of like uh, aversion to it at, at the beginning. And how, how did that change? I mean, then going on to, to do a master's and a PhD, you have to have like the affinity to conducting um, um, like analysis and academic um, like critical thinking rather than just, just doing the language. Yeah, so again, it, everything sort of just came about by accident or trial and error. So as an undergrad, I wrote many essays on Japan, um, the Japanese studies at pro, the Japanese studies program at Monash at the time focused heavily on sociology um, and culture. And I wrote so many essays and every time I wrote them, I thought, yeah, it was interesting, but you know, I've had enough of that topic. Nothing really grabbed me. Um, and then it wasn't until I got to my MA at Monash, which was um, basically a coursework MA, but I ended up doing thesis, uh, was for the first time I started to write on Japan's relations with neighboring countries. And suddenly, yeah, it was something grabbed me. And I thought, I love this. You know, the first one was about Japan-China relations. And, and then I got into, I just randomly found a newspaper article on the history problems between Japan and South Korea. And I just thought it was funny. I didn't know much about, even though I was studying both languages, I didn't know much about the relationship. And I didn't know why Koreans were throwing eggs at the embassy in Japan. And that just made me laugh. <laughs> so I started looking into that and just found there was this whole troubled relationship between them and I was just naturally drawn into it and for the first time in my life you know I thought I wouldn't mind writing a thesis and I, I had a, a mentor a, a supervisor who said to me she was the one who could see the career. I mean she said you know I think because you study Japanese and Korean you could kind of provide a third party perspective on this difficult relationship. You know, you wouldn't be so emotional about it. I think I could see you becoming an academic, you could be a scholar. And I wasn't convinced, but I was convinced enough to write a thesis on it. And I wrote the thesis on the history problems. And then for the first time in my life, I wasn't tired of what I was writing about. I wanted to keep reading about it. Yeah, so it just kind of happened very naturally. And then I applied for a job in Japan. I didn't get it. So then my supervisor said, why don't you apply for Mombasha scholarship and do another master's? So I did that. And when I got it, that's when I decided, look, if I'm going to do two masters, I'm going to go the whole way and I'm going to be an academic. It wasn't like I really wanted to, but then I just, I'm the sort of person that if I decide something, I'll go through with it. I won't change my mind, even if I hate it. <laughs> it just happened um, like that. <laughs> so I really want to kind of, get into uh, your two masters and your experience in Japan, studying your second masters in particular. Um, but then just to jump back a little bit to the undergraduate. So you've kind of said that you didn't necessarily have at that point, this great desire to be an academic. You didn't necessarily, there wasn't kind of a particular aspect of um, Japan or Korea or you know, culture, society, politics, whatever, that you had a particularly deep interest in following up on. So what was it then, uh, or at what point did you sort of think during your undergraduate, well, I'm going to go on and do a master's and kind of why did you take that decision then if you didn't necessarily see uh, mm -hmm. kind of uh, uh, an academic career um, at, at that point? Yeah. It's a good question. It was simply because I felt my language skills needed improvement 
And the job I was applying for in Japan was one where you had to speak Japanese um, all the time. And I just felt like I needed one more year of Japanese, one more year of Korean. And this master course I chose would allow me to do that. And in the end, they made an exception and let me do one and a half years of both languages mm. further. So it was simply because of the language component. I never intended to write a thesis um, when I took that up. It was just, yeah, it just, just sort of happened in the end. <laughs> I don't think it was a very good thesis, but yeah, I did my best at the time. <laughs> and when, when we look at um, a teaching an undergrad level, for example, now in the, in the UK, we can sp specifically talk about like the experiences here in Edinburgh. Um, there's always like this this component of uh, looking at uh, East Asia at least from two angles, so at least Korea and Japan or Japan and China. And um, how was that uh, in the time that you were doing your 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 bachelor's? So you had the, the two languages as a as a great way of starting that off. But was that actually kind of the 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 way um, the, the the region and especially like his, historical and the political side of things were taught or was that a connection that then later on during your, your, your journey then became more, more of a component of your studies? Yeah, at the time Monash was a lot like Edinburgh. Oh, well, actually I would say not as advanced in the, in the sense of there wasn't much encouragement to do you know, two um, languages, but there was certainly a lot more flexibility than probably the British system. I think, where you really could do whatever you want in the Asian studies. You could do three languages if you wanted um, because the major was Asian studies. It wasn't Japan studies, Korean, Chinese. Um, so in that sense, it was more flexible, but no one was really encouraging you to take any particular path. Um, but like I said, a lot of people just did Japanese and Korean because they're quite similar. And because uh, Monash had such a strong focus on Asian studies, everyone there was, you know, really just excited about Asia and wanting to take lots of things. Um, but there was the thing that um, was a bit disappointing for me was there was no real Asian politics expertise in the faculty. There was a China politics um, specialist and I took that class, but there was only one. There was nothing in Japanese or Korean politics. Um, so that's why I think my thesis wasn't anything very special. I was trying to write about politics without having expert guidance. I had great guidance, like great encouragement, but there was just no one in that field. And so then when I finally decided to go to Japan, um, that was when I, I moved in to, to do a second master's. I was put in the political science department because of the supervisor I chose. So that forced me to take a real disciplinary approach. And that was sort of the most exciting time of my life because the very first day I arrived and started, <laughs> I found <laughs> out that there was a visiting Korean professor from Yonsei who was teaching a course um, on Japan-Korea relations. And not only was it, you know, from a IR politics perspective, what I'd always wanted, it turned out that his father was the foreign minister of Korea when oh. uh, Korea signed the normalization treaty with Japan. His father did that. And so he'd grown up learning about Japan-Korea relations. So just suddenly to go from having no expertise to just possibly having the best people in the world. You know, he knew all the details about the ships 
that the Japanese <laughs> rocked up in when they first invaded Korea and just in tiny detail talking about these ships and it was just like being in heaven <laughs> like a child in a candy store and also my supervisor is absolutely brilliant um so that was a real turning point that's when I decided I'm gonna get really serious about studying this relationship yeah so we, we often have have the problem in, in 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 Japanese studies but also um East Asian studies in general that there is kind of a lack of of the methodology because of the different aspects that yeah. you you look at yeah. uh, in the area so um would you say that kind of um the the, the way you yeah kind of had this desire to to have more theory based um learning for that you can then apply to for your analysis um mm -hmm. is that something that that you you see like yeah, changing nowadays in the way um, the area studies are are conducted, or do you see this uh, still as as something that people might should be aware of when they when they choose to study um, Japanese studies or Korean studies and Chinese studies to just be aware of kind of seeking out to get the theoretical background as well the methodology. How do you see that? Yeah, it's something I've given a lot of thought to. I do think that if you're studying Japanese or doing Japanese studies with a view to becoming an academic, I would say it's very strategic to have a discipline, um, even if you see yourself as more of an area studies person, to have both, you know, because uh, when you go on the job market, what I realised is obviously the job market is, really competitive these days and it's probably going to get even more competitive because of the the pandemic or whatever it has um i think it i found it i was really lucky that i can apply for both asian studies departments and ir and politics mm -hmm. ones even diplomacy ones i ended up in a diplomacy department so i just think you know if you know where you fit in a certain discipline you know you can sell yourself in that way or you can sell yourself in more of an area studies way. And, you know, you can essentially do both, you know, but um, I don't think it's necessary to have a strong theoretical approach, even if you work within a particular discipline, say political science, IR, you can work from more of an empirical position, you know, and that's mm -hmm. particularly popular in Japan. Japan's not really big on IR theory. If you do political science in Japan, it's mostly diplomatic history. Um, I wasn't exactly doing that. Um, and they also have political philosophy, which I guess is kind of what we would call IR theory um, or we'd consider it under the rubric of IR theory in Australia. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be strongly theoretical. I think if you do area studies, it's probably going to be more empirical. Mm -hmm. But it is good. Like if, if you can situate yourself in a particular discipline, you know the sort of theories that fit with that discipline. So if you do IR, you have a good understanding of realism, constructivism, all those, you know, different theoretical schools. I think that's strategic. Yeah. So, yeah. So then to get back into um, your MA studies, you, you've got your, you do your two MAs and your second one is at Kale. Yep. Um, yeah. And that is a, an MA conducted entirely in Japanese? Yeah, it was. Yeah, except I was, because um, 
when you do masters in Japan, I guess there's some variation between universities, but you usually spend the first year doing coursework and that coursework's quite heavy. Like you have about six subjects per semester. Um, and there was a couple in English. I think I did two in English, maybe one per semester, just for some relief, you know. Um, but the rest was in Japanese and I did write my thesis in Japanese. It was possible, I guess, that I could have maybe done it in English, but not advised or mm -hmm. encouraged. Yeah. And, and that, that was the thing that jumped out at me when I was going back over your research profile before we started recording, the fact that you wrote your, your master's thesis in Japanese, which of course, I think to anyone who's just either just starting out or hasn't yet started out on um, a language learning journey, especially in a language that might be so different from their own uh, as Japanese that uses an entirely different writing system that that just seems, you know, um, it, I think would seem incredible, almost impossible um, to some people. That's certainly how I would have seen it. Beginning out my yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I can, how yeah, was so, that experience? How how did you find it? And would you recommend it as um, as sort of a challenge for people to to take on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it sounds much harder than what it is because you don't move from you know studying as an undergrad or you know studying in the UK to moving. To Japan and beginning your thesis straight away. I actually spent one year as a Kenkyusei, a research student, which is sort of just part of the Mambasho scholarship. And so I literally devoted that whole year. I took a few coursework units just to start learning the specialist IR vocab in Japanese, just to get used to Obviously, professors in Japan, when you're just taking actual classes, they're not Japanese language teachers, so they don't speak really clearly and <laughs> nicely like the Japanese teachers back home. So that was an adjustment, you know, just learning to hear more mumbled sort of Japanese. It sounded a bit mumbled to me. Um, but I spent that whole year just going crazy with studying kanji, just, you know, really getting up to 2000 beyond, you know, kanji, because I wasn't there yet. And also just studied really hard because to get in, I had to take the entrance exam to get in to the course. Um, and so as part of that, you had to write a small thesis in Japanese. So that was all just practice, right? And then when you start as part of this scholarship, I was really lucky to have been given a tutor who was in my class and um, her Japanese is really beautiful. Um, she writes really great and she was helping me all the time. The university paid her to help me. So what I'd do is every time I had to give a presentation in Japanese, I'd write it and then she would edit it and I would learn from her editing, you know? So you're just constantly writing and because you had so many assignments in Japanese and she would check my Japanese, I'd look at it back. And, you know, it sounds really complicated. You think a thesis is really long, right? But as you probably know from writing your PhDs, there's a pretty limited vocabulary for your specific topic. Mm. You know? It's not like you're writing about the whole world or just yeah. delving into all different topics. You're delving into a very narrow topic. So there's a very limited vocab. And plus, there's only so many academic phrases you can use. You know? <laughs> only so many conjunctive words. And so in the end, and what I, I found the most useful class I ever took in Japan that helped me to write the thesis was um, it was a kind of 
translation project class where two of the PhD students had translated a book by Michael Walzer, Just War, and um, it's a famous book in political philosophy or IR theory. And I was on the committee as part of this class, we had to edit that translation. Mm. So it meant studying the English, studying Japanese sentence by sentence and then debating it. And we did that for the whole year. That was my second year at KO. Mm. And I got credit for that subject. So it meant that when it came to writing my thesis, what I decided, I'd become really good at translating from English to Japanese from doing the class. So I thought, just write it in English. And I did, mm -hmm. I wrote the first half in English and then I translated it. Wow. Because I just thought it's easier to think that way. But then by the end, I was running out of time and I'd also just gotten better at writing so I finished it just writing in Japanese and then my tutor edited it so there's when you hear all that you realize anyone could do it if they had a background in Japanese mm. yeah it's mm. frustrating and tiring but <laughs> I think it's worth <laughs> it and I would recommend it because again it's just one of those other things that might give you a competitive edge on the job market you know because not many people go to those lengths you know <laughs> so they might think oh that's good you know or they just trust your Japanese skills because you did that yeah and to prove yourself in any in any way so I think I would re really recommend it yeah and uh, in your time um in, in in Japan um did you then primarily just focused on on on, on Japan and uh, Jap uh, the Japanese side of things or um, did you also um, like uh, subsequently uh, kept your uh, Korean um, at a certain level and uh, kind of applied your knowledge of the Korean side of things to your degree in Japan as well? Or uh, Yeah, so what I found is because the demands of the course were so high um, that I had to study so much, I didn't have a lot of time to continue with Korean. But... I had to really just focus. Um, and I actually did go and ask the university a couple of times if I could take Korean. And they said, because it's not in my faculty, the faculty I'd been accepted into, I'd have to pay for it myself. And didn't really, my scholarship didn't cover that. But what I did do, because I didn't want to let it go, um, every year I went over to South Korea and took an intensive three week course at Yonsei University. Um, so the language part was a bit harder to keep up, but I did, I was constantly engaging with that field of Japan-Korea relations. And again, one of the most exciting things was I'd been writing about the comfort women issue and things like that, the history textbook issue back in Australia. Suddenly I was in Japan and I was able to, from week one, I started going to meetings um, on the comfort women issue ones sort of underground meetings that activists were organizing and just you know being part of that it was great that was field work I wasn't even aware that I was doing field work but I was and then when I went over to Korea I'd also do interviews with former comfort women and um, people representing them and then that became my master's thesis oh. so yeah I, I was able to keep up the Korea study but not the Korean language so much yeah mm -hmm. So obviously by this point, you've developed this, this interest in uh, academia as a career. You're starting to see yourself as more of an academic. 
at what point did the idea of doing a PhD come into your mind? Was this something that you sort of knew you wanted to do before you'd finished at KO? Or were you coming to the end of your time at KO and thinking, right, what's the next step? Where do I go? Yeah, basically from the time that I got the scholarship for Japan and decided I was going to do a second master's, that's just when I started planning for the future. And I decided before I even arrived at KO that I wanted to do my PhD at ANU. So that was planned three years yeah. before. Yeah, but things started to, I did wonder when I was at KO, you know, maybe I should, because I enjoyed it so much and I was learning so much and such great teachers, I thought maybe I should do my PhD. Yeah, but then I spoke to a few people in Australia, a few professors. I said, what should I do? And they said, if you want to work in Australia, it might be better to do a PhD in Australia. Mm. I don't know now if that's, the right advice yeah it's really hard to say that's a tricky question um it, it worked out for me um but i i don't know yeah it, it's really hard you know that question of saying where you should do it but i did decide i would do it at anu eventually yeah I, ultimately i didn't change my mind so why <laughs> anu then what was it about anu that you that you had your heart so set on it so early before you'd even gone to, to Kale? Yeah, I mean, I'd never even been to ANU, um, but it was just because there's such a high concentration of Asia expertise and Asian politics and IR. You know, I, I don't know if anywhere else in the world you can find that many Asia IR specialists. Mm -hmm. So, and also... Um, a lot of the scholars that I really admired, like Tessamura Suzuki, Ricky Kirsten, were there, you know, the sorts of academics who'd written the textbooks that we were using at Monash were there. So I just kind of saw that as just like the best place in the world. Plus they had Japanese and Korean, and I thought I could, you know, keep taking classes, have a Japan Institute, a Korea Institute. So I just thought that's really the best place in the world. And also I didn't, because I lived overseas for quite a few years already I you know I wanted to be home wanted to see family so I thought yeah that's probably the best thing to do mm -hmm. and did you ever have like toyed with the idea of maybe what you've done um in terms of going to Japan to uh, to study um for a while that you do similar things than in Korea or was that never really on your radar as as an option yeah actually I did leave out a step when it came to <laughs> choosing to study overseas my supervisor at the time said you should choose to either go to Japan or Korea you know they both have government scholarships um, I actually chose Korea because I had done a semester at Tsukubo University um, when I was an undergrad so I kind of thought I've already studied in Japan go to Korea um, but ultimately yeah my my Korean teacher didn't encourage me, you know, she said, I don't think you should. Um, I don't still don't understand why. Um, I think maybe, yeah, it's, it's hard to say why. Um, so in the end, because I needed a reference letter um, in order to apply for that and <laughs> I wasn't sure if she was going to write a strong one. So in the end, I chose Japan. Um, it wasn't that I didn't want to go to Japan. I really did, but it was just because I'd already been there. I thought, I should try and get a more balanced um, position. So then that meant that I was a little bit too far on the Japan side. So once I started my PhD, I made 
a real concerted effort to just attend Korea conferences, just do as much on the Korea side to try and balance my understanding of their positions. So yeah, really leaned more heavily towards Korea through that process. It's still a really difficult balance, I guess, always struggling to, to find that balance. And so on a, a practical level, how uh, then did you kind of initiate that process of starting the PhD? Did you, was there a particular supervisor at ANU that you, that you knew you really wanted to work with that you got in contact with or yep. uh, how did it work? Yeah, so because I developed a disciplinary approach in IR and political science in Japan, I thought I need to continue that. You know, so of course there were great Japanese specialists in the history department, but I thought that's a different discipline. Um, I wanted someone in the politics field. Um, and the way it works in ANU, like many other universities, whichever supervisor you choose, you're going to get a PhD from that school in that discipline. So um, I was really lucky that Ricky Kirsten um, really just fit all the criteria I had. I wanted a full professor. I wanted someone um, who was in... Um, who, who was in the field of IR, political science. Um, she also does history as well, um, but she was based in the IR school. So that would mean my PhD was from there. And when I reached out to her um, before applying, it turned out she was in Tokyo at the time and I was there too. So we met and yeah, we got along really well. So it was really an easy choice, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember well when uh, a couple of years ago uh, she was part of the, the seminar session here in Edinburgh and uh, yeah. uh, I, I suppose it was probably through the connection to you and uh, you could see um, the kind of uh, how well the two of you also on a personal level um, got on. And I think uh, a lot of times um, when we are, when it comes to the choice of a supervisor for a PhD, um, maybe um, the it is the the focus is very much on the the disciplinary um, aspect of things the, the so that they can help with the the specific fields. But um, there is this component of working closely with another person as well, and uh, I think that balance sometimes gets a bit um, under underrated. And like when it comes to really this 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 very important decision, I mean, it's three to four years of very close contact and, and work together. How would you describe um, the, this process or what, what would you advise to people who are at the point at the moment? Yeah, it is really important. I mean, there's so many things you need to consider when you choose a supervisor. I think you need to realise you're not only going to be working with that person for a few years, but you'll probably be relying on reference letters from them way beyond your PhD right into your career, even when you apply for grants, so you become an academic. So it's, it's got to be someone, I guess, firstly, who has quite a bit of standing, you know, in the field. So that means their reference letters will carry weight when you go on the international job market, if, if you are considering doing that. It helps if it's someone who is known in the field, um, not, you know, someone they've got to Google and say, who is this, <laughs> this person? That could be fine too, you know, of course, you know, but it's just one thing to consider. And also, yeah, someone you can work closely with. One of the, the things that made, told me straight away Ricky was the right person is that I emailed her, I think it was about 9 p.m. at night, 
asking, you know, would you consider taking me on? And she replied within like half an hour. <laughs> oh. And I don't all these horror stories of people saying the PhD supervisors don't reply to their emails, they don't read their drafts. And I thought, that's a really good sign. You know, you want someone who's really genuinely into what you're doing. Mm. You know, not someone who's like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, just trying so to put a quoter on there. Yeah, and I don't think they have to be an absolute expert in what you're doing. They don't, you know, but it does help that when you've got something in common, you know, your your research intersects in some way with theirs and that they understand the value of it. It's kind of important that your supervisor is enthusiastic about your work because sometimes when you're doing your PhD, you lose that enthusiasm, you know. You go through periods where it's like you feel like, Nothing's new here because you've had your head in it so long and they can remind you, this is really groundbreaking. This is really important. <laughs> you got to finish it. So I think, yeah, and it does help if you can meet them one-on-one and, yeah, just see if, if you're, you're going to get along. It doesn't mean, you know, everything's going to be easy. There'll, there'll be tough times as well. Um, but, yeah, Ricky still is now a great friend and actually we were on a panel tonight at, at a conference oh. um, today. So still keeping that collaboration going. So that's another thing. You'll become that person's colleague at, at some point. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a long relationship, you know, and so choose carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you've mentioned... Uh, the kind of the 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 scholarship side of things when um choosing kind of uh, to go either to korea or or japan and um how did uh like this this financial aspect of continuing the studies also play into it i mean um a, a lot of times uh people who are considering doing a phd get the advice oh don't um do it if you are not funded um Yeah, this is a really tricky question. Um, I think, I mean, I I was I had to get a scholarship because there's no way I could have paid for that. You know, uh, there's no one no one bankrolling my career basically. Um, so, <laughs> even though my mum's always supportive and helping, but there's no way she could fork out money for a degree overseas and pay for things. So, for me. It, would have been out of the question I think if I didn't um, get a scholarship but I, I I still think when I look back yeah I mean I like to believe that where there's a will there's a way you know mm-hmm. I think maybe I could have for example gone to Japan for a year taught English for a year saved up money and then maybe paid for it as I went you know I probably could have done it um but i guess the tricky thing these days i think where this you know idea comes from that you need a scholarship or don't do it if you are going to pursue an academic career it is competitive as i said and more and more whether or not you get an academic job kind of depends on what you were doing during your phd you know what milestones did you hit or benchmarks and often they'll look at what you did within your phd program they'll look at how many years you did that within and then they'll make projections for your career you know so mm-hmm. if you've got someone who's not working who's just um on a scholarship and just totally devoted to academic activities they may look like they're a lot more productive than someone who's working not always you know mm-hmm. i also find though i've seen a lot of students um 
do really well without a scholarship um, at ANU. Um, what it really just comes down to more than anything in the end is, you know, it's a buzzword, but just grit, you know. Do you have that grit? To just sit down and write it and <laughs> do a good job. Because some people with scholarships don't have that. Mm. You know, they find out they did really well in coursework and had good grades. But then when it comes to thesis writing, which is very different, they really struggle. So I, I would never say to anyone, don't do it. You know, no one can tell you that. I think in the end it's just how much do you want it? And what kind of sacrifices are you going to make? And you do make sacrifices. I think people who pursue academic careers, like us guys, you know, you you have to be okay with delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. And I often find the people who are not okay with that, they tend to like work for a trade company and they get into these really great, you know, careers and start earning money, you know, with their language skills and if you want to move up quickly up the, I don't know, corporate ladder or something, that's the way to go. So, yeah, you you are going to have less money than, you know, your friends who took that track for a while, mm-hmm. you know, but you just have to. I do think that academic career, it's, it is worth it mm-hmm. because you kind of forget that period, and, but you also look back nostalgically on it, you know, when you were rationing your food in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> living on a thousand yen a day for three years. you know you're proud of yourself for that and you feel like that made me tough <laughs> the batch cooking uh curry and yeah, yeah exactly hundred <laughs> yen noodles and <laughs> we've all been there <laughs> But it is fun. It's fun either way, I think, as well. That's the that's the thing to um, bear in mind. Uh, at least I found, you know, uh, we're not quite at, at that point yet. We're still finishing up our PhDs. We don't quite know what the academic job market's going to be when we get out the other side. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm 10 years into my academic journey now, 11 years, actually. Thinking about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I've actually, you know, I'm, I'm officially out of my 20s and I'm still effectively in training for an academic career. And, you know, there's, there's a chance that that might not work out, but at the same time, I don't think I'd change um, anything about the last 10 or 11 years, um, uh, oh, yeah. even, if, even if it didn't work, work out as, a, as an academic career. It's, it's just that the kind of the process in and of itself, despite the fact that it's been tough at times, um, I, I think is kind of a brilliant experience in and of itself. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I agree. And I, yeah, I actually went into the sort of academic track thinking I probably won't get a job just because everyone said that to me. There's not many jobs. You probably won't get one. And I even had people saying that in the first year of my PhD. Do you really want to do this? You'll regret it. But um, it's worth it because when, when you think about it, I mean, what an interesting, unique life experience it is to do a PhD and to do field work. You know, that's something that I always thought would be really cool to do. I just wanted to do field work, mm. you know. <laughs> and then um, also writing the thesis, I found it painful. Um, but I also, something I wasn't expecting at the end, because, you know, you go through this painful process and it goes for a long time. Yeah, you come out of it just feeling like you've been conditioned. You know, it's kind of like, say, you trained for a marathon and you came out really... I don't know, ripped, you know, your muscles, <laughs> really. 
and you run that marathon and you're like a machine you kind of feel like that but mm. mentally yeah you know? yeah and i thought wow it's worth it just for that you come out you may look the same or you probably look a bit older and a bit ragged <laughs> like hairs dark under the eyes but yeah you feel you've been conditioned you're, you're a changed person yeah you know that's what i felt i don't know if that's the same for everyone and then you kind of feel like if I can do that, I can do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. If I can start that long project and see it right through to the end, I can finish anything in my life. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the job is, yeah, I mean, it, it comes with its own set of challenges, academic jobs. It's not fun. And I don't believe, you know, any particular job makes you happy. You know, it's you just make a choice and you make the best out of it. Mm-hmm. And you've you've mentioned that uh, people were kind of saying these these things that oh there's there are not many jobs it is very com- um, competitive. Uh, what um, what was kind of your coping mechanism or your your uh, thought process while getting to like the last parts of your PhD? How did you um, kind of started the job hunt? Was that something that yeah you you did after you finished um, your PhD or was that kind kind of a yeah, um, simultaneous developments that you were already looking on where you could position yourself, where you could uh, apply for, um, what yeah, was the process it, behind it? It was um, really surprising. Nothing that I ever thought um, would happen. Um, just getting back to how you deal with all the negativity of people saying, there's no jobs, you're not gonna get one, why are you wasting your time? I think the biggest asset that I had um, was coming from the classical music world, which is about 10 times more competitive than academia. You know, I wanted to be a flute player. I wanted to be in an orchestra. There is like one in a billion chance that would happen, right? I mean, you look at the principal flute in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. They've been there for about, I don't know, 40 years. They don't leave. There's like one or two. There's like a couple of flutes in each orchestra. And when I was studying flute at Melbourne Uni, I think there were 40 flute players and one could get in the orchestra. And of course, the one who got in was the one who was already professional when she started. And the odds in that career are just shocking. And still, I was willing to pursue it. I would have given anything for it, even playing in pain and playing with injuries. So when I moved to academia and people started saying to me, there's no jobs, or when I started aspiring to be an academic, I looked on the internet and there, there were jobs. And I thought, wow, you guys don't know what competition means. Mm-hmm. There are jobs. Mm-hmm. If I keep applying for them, I'm going to get one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I was like, at least there's positions, you know? Yeah, there might be quite a few people applying, but if you keep applying. So I wasn't too worried but of course you do have moments when you I was just more worried about not finishing you know and just giving up but you know keep going um but yeah so my plan was always to do a postdoc you know I was thinking I'll go to the US or something and then I can still remember the day I was just sitting working my PhD in Canberra um just writing and someone just flicked me an advert I was not ready to go on the job market was not on the job market and it was position at Edinburgh for Japan Korea Relations Specialists. <laughs> and someone sent it to me saying, Lauren, I think somebody created a job just for you. <laughs> and I sent it to my PhD supervisor, just kind of as a joke, thinking she'd say, 
Lauren, don't even think about it. You need to finish writing. And she surprised me by writing back straight away saying, you have to apply for this because mm-hmm. it doesn't come up often when <laughs> there's a position that's very niche and it's the niche field you work in. So it means you have a much higher chance than say you just went for an open IR position, you know, where you just got open rank, I don't know, and it was, you know, the lower level teaching fellow. So I put in an application just thinking we'll never, ever get that job, just didn't feel ready. And before I knew it, I was on a plane to Edinburgh. (laughs) 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 You guys. (laughs) (laughs) The things can surprise the hell out of me. Honestly, I spent, I was so strategic for so long, you know, it didn't even come into my head that I would go to the UK. It wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. I was just either like Asia or Australia or the US. Never would I thought all that study of Japan career relations would take me to Scotland. <laughs> I'd never been. <laughs> so you can, you can plan and plan and plan, but ultimately you've got to follow the advertisements. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and you don't know when they're coming. Mm-hmm. And I would say, yeah, if one comes and it's specifically tailored to what you do, even if you're not finished, you should still apply mm-hmm. because that doesn't happen often. It's like a kind of a lottery, I guess. You know, yeah. just mm-hmm. when you're numbered up, oh, take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Had yeah. you finished your PhD then when you were? When you headed off to Edinburgh, did you then have to kind of get it all wrapped I up? I worked really hard in the first year and finished it during the summer of mm-hmm. the first year. And, yeah, it was a nightmare, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, just a nightmare. I couldn't go to the Fringe Festival, not even <laughs> one time. I just went into lockdown and yeah. it was painful. I put myself in lockdown and it was very, very painful. And I kept telling myself, this is the only time in your life you're going to be in lockdown. <laughs> Not knowing the pandemic uh, was coming. <laughs> I was back. I literally was telling myself that, even using that word lockdown, just don't go out, don't go out for six weeks. And then before I knew it, yeah, back. Well, at least <laughs> it was a good bit of practice. Exactly. <laughs> it. It. You took a bit, a bit more prepared than most of us were. Yeah, there were yeah. a lot of memes that went around when the lockdown started saying for academics, there's no change at all. As <laughs> <laughs> usual, we spend a lot of time in lockdown. <laughs> yes, I think just, for me, the only change I found was instead of being locked down in the library, I was locked down in my, my kitchen. Exactly, right? We I've just... got access to a fridge here, so that's that's fine. <laughs> And just Better. connected from um, going on from from that experience, kind of the the trial run of the lockdown, and now to the the kind of the reality <laughs> of worldwide lockdowns and um, teaching moving online and uh, conferences as well moving online. But where would you see um, the like uh, academia go with because of the the, the circumstances we are in now? Um, do you have any kind of, uh, yeah, pr- prediction or, or 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 feeling what this will do to to academia uh, as uh, on its own, or is it a chance yeah. or more of a disadvantage? I think you know I wouldn't think about 
Yeah, I wouldn't think too much about disadvantage because I think it's already so hard to finish a PhD. I just, again, I, I wouldn't, I would try not to let my mind go there. But what I've noticed is I don't think the postdoc market has been hit too badly. Mm -hmm. okay. So I would even recommend it. It is better to start with a postdoc because you get time to really get ahead on your research before you start teaching heavily. Depends on what kind of postdoc it is. Mm -hmm. So I would say it could mean people have to do maybe spend more time in that postdoc phase. They might have to do a couple of postdocs. I think, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, the sector has been hit badly, like many sectors, but I'm hopeful that it, it will rebound. You know, it's probably gonna take a couple of years. Oh, what I've noticed though, as someone who works at a university, I haven't seen a drop in the market. I mean, I know some degrees are not bringing in as many students, but certainly the diplomacy degrees I've been involved in, we've had just as many applications, if not more. So yeah. I didn't see the demand for tertiary education dropping off. Yeah, it would take a hit and universities need to save money so they may not hire so many people for the next, I don't know, two years. But um, what I'm also noticing is universities are very mindful of the impact this is having on early career researchers mm -hmm. and they are trying to devote what little funds they have to supporting them that's um, in some institutions not I can't speak for um, many and also I know academics including myself are worried about the impact it's going to have so you know we'll hopefully devote more time to nurturing scholars and helping to guide them through this troubled time but yeah my advice would be to don't focus so much on the academic job market contracting because it's natural and I think I, I hope it, it won't last I don't think it will but just to really focus on the postdocs especially the ones that are funded by I don't know governments right that money is probably not going to go away and you know like there's really great ones in Japan JSPS and things like that they're fabulous postdocs so I would just keep my eyes set on one of those. And just for people who are listening who perhaps are still fairly early in their academic career um, and don't know what a postdoc is, I mean, I think it, it's worth pointing out that the postdocs are funded um, positions yeah. and, that, and that it effectively is a job. Um, oh, it is, yeah. So people who are thinking about hearing the word postdoc rather than going into an actual you know, academic career as a as a professor or a lecturer it's not to say that you're then having to you know sort of find a way of funding yourself as a as a student yep. it's um it is an actual paid position that you can oh, absolutely. support yeah. yourself on so and, and as i was saying some of them are paid really well you mm -hmm. know like jsps ones really great and you get a budget for buying books which is something you get as an academic you know so it it is very much like a real job and I actually, I mean, some people might think, oh, it's ideal to just become a lecturer straight away. Um, I mean, maybe in some ways it is, it will give you some security. But I, the advice I was given by a professor, and I think it was good advice. It was in the first year of my PhD and it was someone at a conference I went to. And he said the ideal track is actually a three-year postdoc. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and there are some three-year postdocs. And he 
the logic behind that um, advice was that that will allow you to finish your book, get publications out so that when you get an academic job, you'll be promoted much quicker, mm-hmm. you know, because you won't be trying to juggle all that with teaching. Yeah. So you may see like some of your peers get a lecturer job straight away and say you got a postdoc, but you'd be surprised that you may end up a senior lecturer at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not ever the case that the sooner you get into that tenure track position, the sooner you'll be promoted. It's doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wouldn't look at one as being better or worse than the other. There's advantages and disadvantages to both. And from what I'm seeing, the postdoc market is it's it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't seen that really contract yet. I think from from the um, conversations we we had on this podcast before, but also with with uh, um, colleagues at conferences or, or or other lecturers, is just uh, kind of this. Uh, yeah, there are so many different ways of of, of making a career within uh, academia, with so many different uh, paths that you can go down to that eventually, then, for example, leads you um, to like a, a very secure position as a lecturer at a university, but the way people get there is is just so, so different. And I think that is kind of the beauty of it because um, as uh, there is no one right way to to, to make it uh, or, or, or to get a, a job. You have much more um, leeway and also uh, kind of designing your, your own way um, as we are all also different uh, people. So um, I think that is kind of, and that is, is also, um, as you've mentioned, I, I think uh, really something that won't be impacted too much by the pan- pandemic and COVID, this, this openness of the career path as an academic. And that's probably what we should be focusing and kind of like positivity on and this, this is not something that's gonna be impacted much by, by, by these kind of circumstances we are in at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I've often come across academics and this is something about the, you know, the profession where people make snide remarks about other academics because they do so much of this or so much of that. But it's silly because, yeah, as you said, there's so many different academic paths you can follow. You can have a heavy administrative load. You can have a heavy research load. You can have quite a balance of both. You might even have a, a strong sort of, you know, policy you know path that you're taking or you might really pursue impact driven work you know there's there's so many paths you can take and yeah I often thought that I was on the wrong path I always thought that but you know I really like the job that I have so yeah you just and you can change jobs you can move around and I think yeah that I think if anything things will become even less traditional in the sense that I think the budget model of universities is going to have to change. And that opens up, you know, sort of avenues for academics to be more entrepreneurial, you know, so it could mean that you may be someone who doesn't have, you know, whatever the best research profile, but you're really good at bringing in grants because your research really aligns with, I don't know, some funding body and therefore you become an asset to the university or, you know, so there's, I think it it will open up, yeah, new avenues um, for academics to design their own career and look mm. at ways that they can support the universities that they work for. Mm. Mm. 
and you you have moved around sort of on that point as well just to kind of tie up your mm -hmm. own personal story as the listeners will know from the introduction you're not at edinburgh anymore you're back um mm -hmm. where you did your phd back at anu um yeah. how did that come about and you know how has that experience been of already working in a couple of, of different institutions, albeit one of which you're already, you're already very familiar with from your PhD, but working in two different institutions um, in your career already in different, uh, different faculties, different departments? Yeah, it makes things, yeah, really, it makes your career a lot more interesting and a lot more exciting. Um, I mean, that interlude I had in Scotland for three years, that, that was, you know just the best you know I'll always yeah regard that as being one of the real highlights of my life especially surprising because uh, it wasn't planned you know I obviously I look back really fondly living in Japan and Korea I never thought that I'd fall in love with with Scotland and Edinburgh and I just loved working there and honestly yeah that was for me because when I was doing my PhD and I'm sure you sometimes think this too you're like I don't know still if I want to be an academic, even though you're striving for it. And you don't really know until you start working as one. And I remember when I was a PhD student thinking, I would never be like one of those people who moves to the other side of the world because mm -hmm. I'll miss my family. I just mm -hmm. won't do it. And then suddenly here you are applying for a job in Scotland and <laughs> you couldn't go further if you tried. And I remember I was thinking, is this the right thing to do? And when I started teaching and I suddenly realised that that job I had at Edinburgh, it just sort of brought together all the study I did. I was teaching exactly what I'd studied, Japan, Korea relations, you know, Northeast Asia, security, which is something I studied while I was in Korea. You know, just everything came together. And that's when I realised this really what I want to do, 100%. Now. Yeah, I've decided you know, I want to stay in the, this kind of job. Um, but that was a fixed term contract. And so I was on the job market and then job came up in Australia. And again, it was, this time it was a different discipline. It was diplomacy. And I didn't know if I could really, you know, sell myself in that field. But when I thought about it, a publication I'd just done on um, the role of Buddhists in Sino-Japanese relations and normalization, how it shaped that normalization process fitted with that. And my PhD was actually all about diplomacy, the role of non-state actors, how they shaped the diplomatic relationship between Japan and South Korea. And so I was really surprised that I got that job. And so that's why you'll be surprised. I think you've got to think flexibly about what positions you can apply for, you know, it doesn't just have to be Japan jobs or Asia jobs it could even just be like diplomacy is a subfield of IR you know so you might want to think about what is the subfield of whatever discipline you see yourself in what how many subfields could you apply for mm. as well as the broader field um, so and it it's just been great because things are different in the UK so it means that when you go to staff meetings in Australia you can you're talking about how should we do this and then you know, you've, you've seen how things are done differently overseas and you can, you know, bring that up. How about looking at this way? And so it really helps. And it also makes you more competitive back home because they do appreciate it. Universities do appreciate it when you've kind of had experience of different academic cultures. They don't necessarily 
always like to just hire from their own pool. I would say they generally don't want to. It does happen, you know. Sometimes you're just the best person for that job. So I think, yeah, again, just be open-minded, even if you think, I would never do that, never go and take a job overseas. It's worth just applying and then thinking about it if you're offered it, you know. And you'd be surprised at how desperate you just suddenly feel to teach. You just feel like, I've been studying so long, I just want to teach, I'll take it. <laughs> so it can surprise you. <laughs> Great. Um, so just to wrap up then, to ask you the question that I think we've asked everyone so far, what advice would you give yourself on that first day of undergraduate studies, turning up to start your, well, okay, perhaps slightly different for you because obviously your first day of <laughs> undergraduate studies, you weren't, um, <laughs> you, you were expecting a very different path. But um, once you'd made that decision to switch to uh, Japan and Korea, what advice would you give yourself um, just starting out on that particular journey? I would probably give myself two pieces of advice is one, just really enjoy the journey. Don't freak out so much and don't think that you have to know where you're going because you'll actually be taken to places that you weren't even planning to go, you know? So just in, enjoy the ride, you know? It's quite exhilarating, I think, when you don't really know where you're going, you know? There's, Kind of two ways to look at it one you can be really stressed i don't know if i'm going to get a job or you know where i'm going um but the other way you can look at it is you know because you don't know it's exciting you don't know what country you're going to end up in or what you're going to do um so just enjoy the journey and regard it as exhilarating rather than something to stress about the other advice i would give is don't compare yourself on you know to other students on the basis of really narrow skills. Like, as I said, I wasn't the best in my Japanese class or my Korean, you know, far from it, it was in the middle. And I was sort of thinking, oh, maybe I'm on the wrong track. And, you know, it was really hard to be at the bottom again, um, having worked my way up in flute over 10 years to go down to being at the base, you know, the basic level of Japanese was humiliating. And, you know, comparing myself to others who are good. But what I didn't realize later is what matters is, you know, unique strengths that you have. You know, you don't have to be super good at everything, you know. And I found my strengths much later. It was when I did my master's thesis at Monash. It was only then that I realised I had some skill of being analytical. You know, when I started to get positive feedback, it was only when I started to write a thesis. And I'm like, oh, that's really unique. And then I just found I had a strange confidence in that area but not in other areas. So I think you don't have to be good at everything, you know? Mm. And also what matters is your people skills and how you build relationships with people in your field and your mentors. So the things that I thought mattered so much don't matter that much, you know? So yeah, don't compare yourself. And just enjoy the journey, you know? It's life. It's not just about getting a job. It's not the final thing. It's, it's a very... Yeah, exciting path to take. I think the Asian Studies one. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very um, inspiring uh, thought to end our interview for today. <laughs> I mean, um, much more uplifting in, in, in these kind of desperate times that we are in at the moment. You couldn't be much more uplifting, I, I, I'd say. So thank you very much for that, Lauren, and for taking um, time. Okay.
It is uh, quite late, I think, now in Australia, isn't it? Or... Uh, 9.30. By 9.30. Ac- academic working hours, that's not late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not that late. <laughs> no, but um, it's been um, really great talking with you folks. I, I miss you a lot, and I hope we can meet up at a conference soon. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I'm also really excited to see where your careers take you. <laughs> or you will not end up where you were planning to go. <laughs> yes, well, um, uh, the listeners won't know, but Lauren was actually my master's supervisor, my master's thesis supervisor. So, um, yes, a lot, lot riding on, on my career now uh, for you. But it's uh, yeah, been a particular pleasure to have you on um, because of that, because I obviously wouldn't be where I am today without your input. So thank you so much for no, coming on and talking well. to us. Yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot um, for having me on your podcast. And yeah, um, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And and just before you go, is there, yep. have you got any, any projects, any articles, any books, anything that you want to mention that you've got coming out? I'm just, I've got a book chapter coming out on the comfort women issue in South Korea. I'm looking at how the comfort women movement um, shaped colonial memory, um, not just of that that particular historical episode, um, but more broadly. So that should be coming out very early next year or maybe even before the end of this year. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Look forward to reading it. (laughs) Thank you. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Well, we'll leave it there then. Thank you again so much for joining us, Dr. Lauren Richardson. Great. Great to catch up. Okay. (laughs) Take care. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Richardson, make sure you have a listen to our previous episodes too. You can find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For further information and updates, check out our Twitter account at VoicesINJS. You would like to again thank the British Association for Japanese Studies for their continued support. Until next time, goodbye.